So I was praying this past week about what to share, and the Lord kept bringing me back to the book of Nehemiah. And so we're going to read about Nehemiah. And if you don't know anything about Nehemiah or the book of Nehemiah, it's a great book, but it's really a book on spiritual leadership and opposition to the work of God. And so some context before we jump into our study. Again, we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 4. We'll look at verses 1 through 21, but uh, just some quick context before we jump right into the middle of chapter 4. Jerusalem had been destroyed. King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon during this time in Nehemiah, in 587 BC, he sacked Jerusalem and he destroyed Jerusalem. The walls of the city were torn down and the city was left in ruins. And if you know the book of Daniel, you'll see in Daniel chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know those guys who go into the furnace. And this was the same king, King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the same time frame. We know that the walls, gates, and doors of the city had been torn down, and it was going to be needed to be restored to legitimize it as a city. And the city walls were used as a way of protecting the city. And so it was important that they would get restored. Now, there had been a couple efforts to come and restore the walls. Zerubbabel led a group of exiles to restore the city around 538 B.C. Then 80 years later, Ezra the scribe came with a second group to restore it, but over time that work stopped. And 13 years later, after Ezra's initial expedition, Nehemiah hears about the city and the wall being destroyed, and he develops a great burden and a deep calling from God to restore the walls of the city. And the walls being restored was going to be a monumental step. It was going to be a great undertaking, and God is going to call him to do that, to restore the city. And so really quick, what do we know about Nehemiah? Well, we're kind of jumping right into the middle of Nehemiah 4. But if you don't know anything about Nehemiah, a quick reading in Nehemiah chapter 1 is you hear that he is a cupbearer for the king of Persia, the king Artaxerxes. And so in the cupbearer position was one of prestige. It was a, a position of influence. And we learn a lot about him in Nehemiah chapter 1. For the sake of time, we're not going to go back there. But in 1, we hear that he hears about Jerusalem. He hears about the walls being torn down. And we learn a lot about Nehemiah in that initial prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1. We know that he calls God the great and awe-inspiring God. He confesses the sins of himself, his family, and the Israelites and he reminds God of his account to bring Israel back if they turn from their wicked ways. And so we learn, and as you read Nehemiah as a whole, you, you start to pick up that he is a great man of faith. He knew God's word. He respected God. And as you read Nehemiah in its entirety, he's a great spiritual leader. There's a quote I'd like to read. It's, it says this, that there are three kinds of people in the world. Those who don't know what's happening, those who watch what's happening, and those who make things happen. And we're going to see here that Nehemiah is, is the latter. As we read Nehemiah chapter 4, it's relevant for us today is because we're going to see in part of Nehemiah's restoring of the wall, he's going to come through this 
time where the Israelites are discouraged. And if you've ever been in any type of leadership um, yourself, or maybe you've led something before, it can be tough when you start to lead people who are discouraged, or they're tired, or they're wanting really to quit. And so I think that there's a lot for us in that we can acknowledge some of these discouragements that the Israelites are going to go through, but we're also going to see how Nehemiah brings them out of the discouragement and some of the moves that he makes as a godly leader. And so if you guys would turn with me, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 4. We'll read the first 12 verses. It says, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they were building, he would break down their stone wall. And listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads, and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight. Because they have angered the builders. So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. For the people had the will to keep working. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of the laborer fails. Since there is so much rubble, we will never be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they won't realize it until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, everywhere you turn, they attack us. And so we first hear of these guys, Sanballat and Tobiah. Now, previously in Nehemiah, in chapter 2, verse 19, we see that these two men first hear about the work that Nehemiah is trying to do, and right away they are wanting to oppose the work of the walls being restored. They are what the kids would call today haters. They didn't want to see the wall being restored. And what we're going to see is they're really opposed to the work. If you look at verses 1 through 3, It says that Samballot said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? And then Tobias says, even if a fox climbed up what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. And if you think about that, um, that's a pretty good burn for them. You know, if a fox went up on this wall, it would fall down. You know, so you see right away the character of these guys. They're wanting to just get in the way of what Nehemiah and God's people are trying to do. And this is a good reminder for us because the enemy is always going to want to oppose the work of God. There's always going to be opposition to God's work. 
There's going to be resistance or a group of adversaries. And maybe you've even experienced that where there's just voices that start to come out when God is doing a work. I think of uh, Goliath and, and the Israelites and David at the time and how Goliath's voice sent the Israelites into fear. And sometimes I think those voices can just be condemning thoughts from the enemy, can't they? They can just be internal thoughts that the enemy just lobs into our head and tries to discourage us from what God is calling us to do. And we need to know that we are in a battle. You know, we're living our life. We are in a spiritual battle. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so we see here Nehemiah's response to this initial um, antagonizing by Sanballat and Tobias. In verses 4 and 5, he prays. And then in verses 6 through 12, we see here that the work is progressing. Actually, the walls are starting to go up. They're moving along. And that's when these guys get in front of them. They throw threats at them. They threaten their life. And for the people of Israel, this is right here when the discouragement starts to set in. And this is interesting in the fact that Nehemiah now is going to have to deal with people that are discouraged and get them back into focus onto the Lord to get the wall completed. And so, again, I want to acknowledge the discouragement because I think these are things that we all can relate to and can identify with. And we're not going to hang out in discouragementville. We, we want to see it, but then we want to move on and see how Nehemiah leads them out of this discouragement. But let's go ahead and take a look at four of the causes of discouragement. The first one we're going to notice is that they're tired. Look at verse 10, where it says, the strength of the laborer fails. And notice this, at what point they start to get tired. If you look at verse 6, we learn that the wall was at half of its height. And I thought this was important to look at because I think this can be common for us. And any time that maybe we're a part of, of some ministry or maybe something um, the Lord is starting to do and maybe it's new, and I think there can be times where maybe the newness wore off. Maybe that initial excitement was gone and it got tiring. And this is a reminder to all of us that serving the Lord, serving our family, serving maybe our boss, that, that the work can be tiring. Serving the Lord can be tiring. And I don't know about you, but when I am tired, there can be a tendency to start making poor decisions. Can't there be? Maybe you're a little less patient, maybe a little irritable, maybe a little less disciplined. How many of you guys, when you go to the grocery store and you're tired, you start to make really poor decisions? I think the term is hangry, hungry, angry, angry. Or maybe you're just tangry, you're tired and angry. You know, I know if Andrew's not with me and I'm at Costco, I'm prone to make some pretty bad decisions, you know? You know, I've got the cart to myself, I got a bag of Doritos next to me. Got a bag of half-eaten Funyuns as I'm making my way to, to get the job done. And I think this is something that we can all relate to, is that when we're tired, 
we can tend to kind of be in the flesh and, and again, make poor decisions. Vince Lombardi once said this, that fatigue makes cowards of us all. And I find that to be true. And so we see here that they're tired. The next observation that I want to look at in their discouragement is their loss of focus. In verse 10, it says, since there is so much rubble or rubbish. And it's, we got to know as they're building the walls of Jerusalem, as they're trying to restore the walls, what had happened was previously as the walls were destroyed, there was a bunch of rock and rubble, debris from the previous wall that had been torn down. And as they're implementing this new wall, they're having to move out the the rubble or some of your translations might say rubbish or the debris. And they're having to move that out so they can erect this new wall. And rubbish or rubble and discouragement go hand in hand. They were focusing on the rubble. They were focusing on the work. In other words, they were letting the work distract them from the mission at hand. Instead of being excited and happy about the wall being half completed, they were focused on how far the work still had to go. And this is a reminder, I think, for all of us, especially as we're dealing with people, that there's always going to be rubble, so to speak, or there's always going to be debris that we need to um, work with when we're dealing even with people. And, and that's because we're all broken and sinful people. And so if we tend to focus on people as, as a work or as a job, no doubt it's, it's going to get discouraging. And so here we see that the Israelites, because they're focusing on the problem, not the, the solution, they're discouraged, and the enemy always wants us to focus on the things that are distractions so it can get us away from the work that God wants to do. And so again, the causes of discouragement, they're tired, they've lost their focus. The third one I want to look at is the loss of confidence. When you lose your strength and focus, the next thing to go is your confidence. Notice in verse 6, it said, For the people had the will to keep working, now is replaced by, we will never be able to rebuild the wall. Look at the word we there. And the problem was that they were relying on what they thought they could do, not what God had called them to do. Do you notice the difference? It turned into how they were going to complete the wall rather than how God was going to go before them and empower them to get the wall completed. And the rebuilding of the walls was going to be a God thing. It wasn't going to happen unless God went before them. And anything that we do of significance for God's kingdom, God is going to be involved. Warren Wearsby once said that ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels for his glory. I'll repeat it. Ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels for his glory. God is going to need to be involved in anything that we do that is of any spiritual significance. And they had lost sight of that. And so when we're tired, when we lost our focus, our confidence can waver. The last thing I want to look at is 
in their discouragement, they're tired, they've lost their focus, their confidence is shot. We see here that they're operating in fear. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. It says, And our enemies said they won't realize it until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. And when the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, Everywhere you turn, they attack us. And so right here we see that their lives are being threatened, they're tired, they're scourged, and they're operating in a place of fear. And we know that fear has a way of crippling us. And fear can happen when we get our eyes off of what God is calling us to do and onto what the enemy is telling us or showing us. And so we see here that they're operating in fear. One thing that I really like that Alan Redpath um, an author and pastor who's since went to be with the Lord, he said that fear is the greatest enemy of our faith. Fear is the greatest enemy of our faith. And we know that fear is a tool of Satan. It's not from God. First Timothy 1.7 says, For God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and sound mind. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? Oswald Chambers once said that the remarkable thing about fearing God is when you fear him, you fear nothing else. And so again, the Israelites were discouraged by these things, their tiredness, their loss of focus, their loss of confidence, and they had let fear come in. And so again, we just wanted to acknowledge it because I think we all go through these different things. But then to see how Nehemiah and in his leadership, how he pulls them out and some of the moves that he does to get them back onto the mission that God's called them to do. Let's see how Nehemiah responds. And let's read verses 13 through 21. It says, So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall at the vulnerable areas, and I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And after I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord, and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. And when your enemies heard, I'm sorry, when our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it. Every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. And from that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. And the officers supported all the people of Judah who were building the wall. And the laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building. And the trumpeter was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the office, officials, and the rest of the people, the work is enormous and spread out, and we are separated far from one another along the wall. And whenever you hear the trumpet sound, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work while half of the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. And so we're going to look at five things that Nehemiah does to get these guys back on track. The first thing I want to point out is one that the gaps were where they were most vulnerable. So one thing that Nehemiah does is he has them strategically positioned. Notice that he stations the people with their families. 
Essentially, what he's doing there is he's going to put them where they're most invested. He's going to put them where their heart is, with their family, at the areas that needed to be guarded. And Nehemiah is going to put them where the need is. And I like this because there's accountability there, isn't there? There's ownership there as they're serving in a gap that needed to be closed. And it's important, I think, to our service to the Lord that we ask him, Lord, where do you want me to be? You know, Lord, where do you want me to serve to be a blessing in somewhere where I can grow? And so filling gaps in ministry is needed. And I want to ask the question to you guys, have you positioned yourself in a place where God can use you? Think about it. You know, I think sometimes we're so busy or we've, we've got our schedule mapped out to a T Monday through Sunday, and we already know what we're doing here, 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 here. It's like if God wanted you to do something different or maybe he wanted to change your schedule, would there be any flexibility to, for you to do that? Or are you kind of wrapped up in the things that you're wrapped up in? You know, again, and this isn't a condemning thing, it's just asking honestly, you know, where are you spending a majority of your time? What are you doing? Nehemiah positions them in the vulnerable areas. And so the first thing that we see is the strategic positioning. The second thing I want to notice is in verse 14, if you look there, it says, after I made an inspection... I stood up to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Don't be afraid. Remember the awe-inspiring Lord. Look what he does here. He reminds them to remember the greatness of God. I love that. You have people that are down and out. They're discouraged. And what does he do? He reminds them to remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord. Remember, they were so caught up looking at the rubbish that they needed to stop looking at the rubbish and get their eyes back on the Lord. They needed to get their eyes off the greatness of the task and onto the greatness of their God. And how true it is when discouragement hits us, we forget about the greatness of God. You know, we start to lose that awe factor when we're not thinking about the Lord. Daniel 11.32 says, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And I love that because I think people that are going to point others to remember God, they know God. How do you know God? Well, you know God by spending time in his word. You know God really through experience, right? By prayer, by getting to know him, by trusting in him, by taking steps of faith, by surrounding yourself around people that love the Lord and serving them and serving others. That's how you get to know the Lord. You start to, over time, as you're developing this relationship with God and you're knowing him, you're able to encourage others to do it. Why? Because you're doing it yourself. You know the voice of God. You have this relationship with him. You know, I was thinking about this, and I was reminded of Andrea and our baby Holly. I have a three-month-old at home, and, you know, part of the routine at night is we'll get all the kids put, put to bed, and then we live in kind of a two-story home, and we'll put the kids to bed upstairs, and then we'll go downstairs and talk and um, just hang out. And it's always, it always amazes me when Andrea will be like, wait. 
I hear the baby. And we've got the dishwasher going. We got the window open. You know, the TV might even be on. And she's like, I hear the baby. And I'm thinking, I can't hear anything. And sure enough, she, she'll ask me, go check on the baby. And I can't hear anything. I can't hear anything. I go upstairs. I can't hear anything. I'm at the door. I can't hear anything. I open the door. The baby's crying. And it's like, how did I not hear that? And the point is, is that, you know, Andrea, over time and by spending time with the baby, she's in tune to the sounds that the baby makes. And as she spends time with the baby and is serving the baby, she knows how to discern the voice of the baby. And I think for us, it's the same thing. The more that we know God, we're able to discern his voice and we're able to encourage others that maybe are growing in their walk with the Lord. And Nehemiah, he knew God. He was in tune with what God was doing. And so when discouragement came or when trials came, he was able to push people back toward the Lord. His confidence didn't waver. And I love that aspect about his spiritual leadership. I want to read a, an excerpt from a book. It's by J. Oswald Sanders, Spiritual Leadership. Samuel Bregel, a gifted leader who served for many years in the Salvation Army, outlines the road to spiritual authority and leadership. He said this, It is not won by promotion, but by many prayers and tears. It is attained by confession of sin and much heart-searching and humbling before God. By self-surrender, a courageous sacrifice of every idol, a bold, uncomplaining embrace of the cross, and by an internal, unfaltering look onto Jesus crucified. It is not gained by seeking great things for ourselves, but like Paul, by counting those things that are gained to us at a loss for Christ. This is a great price, but it must be paid by the leader who would not be merely a nominal, but a real spiritual leader of men, a leader whose power is recognized and felt in heaven and on earth and on hell and in hell. And that's someone that is cognizant of the greatness of God. And so again, five moves of leadership by Nehemiah. He, he strategically positions them. He reminds them about the greatness of God. The third one I want to point out is he reminds them what they are fighting for. In verse 14, he said, fight for your countrymen, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He's basically saying to the Israelites, shepherd your people. Lead your people. And we know this, that the shepherd, he lays his life down for the sheep. John chapter 15, verse 13 says, Greater love no one has than this than one to lay down his life for his friends. And if we're being honest with ourselves, you know, as we seek to lead, especially maybe if you are the head of a household or you have kids, you know, shepherding takes a lot of work. There's a lot of sacrifice involved. And what Nehemiah is asking them is like, are you willing to be the leader that God is calling you to be? Maybe you don't have a home, but you have people that you have influence over in the workplace, maybe extended family. You know, and as I was thinking about this, I, I was, the Lord was 
encouraging me because I think more recently with having another child and some of the demands at work and, you know, we recently had somebody staying with us and I kind of feel like I'm all over the place and there's this desire to want to invest into my wife and to my family, but if I'm being honest, just feeling very tired, you know, and feeling like what I have to give isn't that much. And as I was reading this, I was reminding that myself that, man, this is, this is worth it. You know, as we've been um, hanging out with Jack at night, and he's at that age now where he's really into the Bible stories. You know, David and Goliath, were, we've been reading that for a couple weeks every night. You know, he's like, Dad, let's read David and Goliath. And it's like, well, why don't we try something else? No, let's read David and Goliath. And, you know, my kids love coming to church on Sunday. They talk about it all week. Why? Because they love just... They love just being around God's people. They love learning about God. And it's an investment that we believe and know that it's, it's going to have eternal dividends, right, as we invest in our family. And this isn't a condemning thing, and I think the Lord was just encouraging me because I've been in this place where I feel tired, and there's this desire to want to continue to pour out, but I feel at times I'm, I'm kind of on, on a thread, you know? I'm just barely getting by and doing the best I can and feeling like I'm not, not giving what I should. And the Lord reminded me of John chapter 12, verse 24, where Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And again, it's this picture of the seed needs to die before it can grow. And maybe you feel like you're at this place where you're just tired and you don't have much to give. Again, this is a reminder that God can meet us in those seasons of where we're tired. Maybe we ourselves have lost our focus and our confidence, you know, and he can bring us back on track to the mission that God has for us. And so be encouraged that, hey, even for us, you know, as believers, we need to be looking back to Jesus and being in awe with him and just clinging to Jesus. And you know what? He'll meet us in those moments. Amen. And so again, strategic positioning, remembering the greatness of God. And he reminded them what they were fighting for. Let's look at verses 15 through 18. He says, when our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. And from that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. And the officers supported all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. And the laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building, and the trumpeter was beside me. So in verse 15, he said, When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing. The the fourth point I want to point out is working and watching go hand in hand. Working and watching go hand in hand with an emphasis on prayer. Notice this, that once they saw the defense of the people of God, the enemy started to shrink back. As they started working, notice now they're prepared. They're still completing the work of God, of the wall, but they also now have weapons in their hand. And again, I want to point out that the weapon really that we see Nehemiah using isn't a physical weapon. It's a spiritual weapon. It's one of prayer. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. If we go back and look at initially in our section 
in the first three verses of Nehemiah, Sanballat and Tobiah, they came to discourage the group. What does Nehemiah do? It tells us in verse 4, right away he immediately starts to pray. They come back and try to oppose him again. It tells us in verse 9 that he stops and he prays. We learn very in the beginning of the book of Nehemiah in chapter 1, he hears about the walls being destroyed, the city being sacked. What does he do? He starts to pray. That was an essential for him. And I think as we think about godly leadership and having an influence on other people, he was a man of prayer. He was constantly in prayer. And notice that prayer is an indication of us being on guard. Prayer can be one of the greatest marks of our dependency upon God. And so again, I'm just asking the question, how is your prayer life? You know, is the first thing that happens when there's an issue arise or maybe there's a conflict, is the first thing that you do try to solve it without God? Are you brought to a humble place of crying out to God saying, Lord, help me, give me wisdom, give me direction? The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, that pray at all times in the spirit while every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. There's a strength in prayer, and we see that Nehemiah had this. It was in prayer. I love how Jesus models prayer for us so well. Um, One of my favorite stories in the Bible is in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Imagine a whole day of working, and, you know, what does it say that he does? It says that he goes to the mountain to pray. And I don't know about you, but my first default when I'm um, tired or maybe had a long day, it's not to carve out a bunch of time to pray. I I want to be, but if I'm just being honest with myself, you know, my my first default when I'm tired is, man, how can I relax a little bit, you know? Um, Let's put the kids to bed so we can, me and Andrea can hang out. You know, that's kind of my thinking at times is, is not like, hey, let's go to the Lord in prayer. But if we're being honest with ourselves, when we are set apart to pray and when we kind of align ourselves to seek the Lord first and things, isn't it amazing how things start to change? Our perspective changes, our view towards people change as we're taking time to pray. I think of Moses and when he was meeting with God You know, it says that he would meet to God, meet with God face to face. And as he's going down the mountain, what happens? As he's spending time with God, it says that his face start to shone. That they had to put a veil over him, right? Because they didn't want the people to see that the glory of God was departing him as as, as the the shine started to fade. And, And that point being is that as he was talking with God, it left an effect on him. And as we are seeking God and as we're dependent upon God, you know what's going to happen? Is it's going to start having an effect on us, but also other people. Think about this. The people that you really respect in their walk with the Lord, you know, maybe people that you aspire to be or people that you, you want to get wisdom from. Think about it. Are they, are they men or women who like to pray? I'd hope so, right? I'd hope that you're getting um, wisdom from people that just, they love the Lord. You know, they're in fellowship with God. They're talking to God. They know God's word. And you know what? As we pray as people, you know what's going to happen? 
as you're growing in your relationship with the Lord, as you're taking steps of faith, God's going to start putting people in your life that you can pray for. You know, God's going to start drawing people toward you. Why? Because they see Christ in you. And again, this is part of Nehemiah's godly leadership. It was a weapon that he used well. And why? Because he knew God. We can be that fragrance aroma to the world around us. I want to point out this too, as, as they are alert, as they've got their weapons, guess what happens? They start focusing back on God as Nehemiah points them back to God. Notice that the work starts happening again. These people were discouraged. They were down and out. And as Nehemiah is kind of pointing these moves and getting them back to to looking to Jesus, the work starts happening. And I think there's some great application for us as well as, as we're focusing back on God. Maybe you have been displaced a bit. Maybe you've been distracted. And God is gracious to put us back into service and to use us for the work that he's called us to do. And so strategic positioning, remembering the greatness of God. He reminds them what they're fighting for. Working and watching go hand in hand. Let's read verses 19 through 21. It says, Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is enormous and spread out, and we are separated far from one another along the wall. Whenever you hear the trumpet sound rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we continued the work while half of them were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. And so the last uh, observation that we see from Nehemiah is he calls them to a rallying point. In verse 20, he says this, whenever you hear the trumpet sound, rally to us here. The word rally can mean to assemble and restore. And I love that because that's really what we're doing at church, isn't it? We're rallying together and we're fellowshipping. And it's a truly godly fellowship where God's word is being exalted, where the worship of God is being exalted, prayer is happening. You know, we're being accountable to one another, we're serving one another. That's what this rallying point is for us. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It's so important that we are in godly fellowship. You know, and so if you're here today and you're wondering, well, should I be coming to church? The answer is yes. You know, should I be making a priority to being with God's people? The answer is yes. Why? Well, we see that God honors that. Remember in the book of Acts, as the Lord is starting a new work, what does it say in Acts 2, verses 42? As the church is just getting going, the work of God is happening, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so that's what we're doing as we're rallying together. And Nehemiah makes it a point to have them get together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. I love what he says here too. As he blows the trumpet, we're going to rally. And then what does he say? He reminds them that our God will fight for us. Again, they're rallying together, but it's not just a rally for rally's sake. He's rallying them to remind them, hey, God will fight for you. 
And as I was praying this week, I really felt like that may be a word for somebody today. Maybe you've been going through a, a tough time and that you just needed to be reminded that God actually is fighting for you. He wants to fight for you. I think of in Romans, it tells us that he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Did you know that God is interceding for you? Yes, he's, uh, for those who believe in Jesus, you know, he's paid that, that penalty of death for us. And for us as, as Christians, we know that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, that he's covered us, meaning that he's taken away our sin, our wrongdoing, and he's, he's that covering for us. But as we live as Christians and as we continue to walk with the Lord, he is continually going before us in guiding us and protecting us in wanting to be our shield. John 16, 13, 30, I'm sorry, John 16, 33 says, I have told you these things so that in you, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. And so today we're gonna give an opportunity if you don't know Jesus in that way, maybe you don't have that covering Maybe you've been walking through light and life, I'm sorry, and you've wanted to know that somebody cares for you and wants to defend you and wants to lead you. We're going to give you an opportunity to, to make that decision. As we close here today, I just want to make the point that Nehemiah would complete the wall with God's people in 52 days. So when they first start, that wall would go up in 52 days, which is amazing to think about with all the discouragement and the opposition. What God had called Nehemiah to do would come to pass. You know, it's a good reminder for all of us that God completes the things that he starts in us and what he's called us to do. It doesn't always maybe go the way that we think it will go, and there may be some detours or discouragement or opposition, but God is faithful to lead us and to do the work that he wants to do. Amen? And again, as we close, if you don't remember these five points, you know, that's okay. The main thing is that you are reminded that Jesus is your leader, you know, you can insert Jesus in all these things that we talked about, how Jesus will position you where he wants you to go, how Jesus is the one who reminds us of his greatness. Jesus is the one who reminds us what we're fighting for. Jesus reminds us to work and watch and to pray. And Jesus is our rallying point, and he will defend us. Amen? Well, let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, Lord. We're thankful for just that reminder, Lord, that when we're discouraged, Lord, that you, you're faithful by your spirit to kind of point out how to get us back on track. And Lord, you're a faithful leader. Lord, um, we pray for our hearts just to be sensitive to being led by you, Lord, and that we would be put in the place where you want us to go and that our faith would grow, and that we would have a godly influence on the people that are around us. And we know, Lord, that we can't do that without you. Lord, we need you so desperately. 
And so we just ask you, Lord, just to continue just to fill us with your spirit. And for those that are here today, maybe you've been seeking. You don't even know exactly what you've been seeking, but you've been wanting to have somebody, something, a God reveal themselves to you. I'm here to tell you today that that's Jesus. He's been working on your heart. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah that before I formed you, I knew you by name. The Lord knows you completely. He has a plan for your life. And he's begging you to come. He can't defend you if you don't want to come. And so he's begging the question, will you come? Will you let me be Lord of your life? Is there anyone here today that you just want to make a a bold claim and ask, ask Jesus, will you be my God? Would you raise your hand so that we can pray for you? And if there's anyone here today that maybe you've been going through just a a trial. Maybe you've been discouraged. Maybe you've been hanging on by a thread, you know, and you're, you're wanting the Lord to kind of bring fresh vision to you, a fresh filling. Would you, would you raise your hand so that we can pray for you? Okay. Well, we're going to be praying. I'm going to, I see these hands that went up and if you need prayer, there's people in the back that would love to pray for you. I'll be in the back as well. But let's pray. Lord, we we thank you for just these hearts, Lord, that have responded to your word, Lord. And they're asking for just a a fresh filling of your spirit, Lord. They're, They're tired maybe. Maybe they're discouraged at where things are at. Lord, I pray that you just breathe your spirit on them, Lord. Help them to get their focus back on you in whatever trials or problems that they're going through. We pray, Lord, that they be reminded that you love them and that you want to fight for them and that you want to defend them, Lord. And part of that is just acknowledging, Lord, that we need your help. And so, Lord, we confess that, Lord, our just great need for you to lead us, Lord. And be with my brothers and sisters. I pray as we leave here today that we'd be just blown away at your great love for us, Lord. And that while we were yet sinners, Lord, that you still, you still love us, Lord. And so be with my brothers and sisters. I pray you'd bless them, encourage them this week. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to encourage you guys. If you want to worship the Lord, if you want to stand, you're able to do that. If you want to kneel, we encourage you to do that. If you need prayer, we do have prayer. Um, prayer counselors in the back that can pray for you. Also, we have the communion elements. Um, to my right here and just take time and, and talk to God, worship him. Thank you.